0: Please take out your Bible, opening this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation, chapter 20, this morning. And as you turn there, just a little bit of review as we've been walking our way through the book of Revelation for about a year now. We've made our way now toward the end section. We've made our way into chapter 20. And last Lord's Day, we were considering verses 1 through 3, the binding of Satan for a thousand years. And we saw in the text there that in verses 1 through 3, the, uh, si- Satan is bound by first the almighty power of God. We saw that in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 20. An angel comes to, to take on this great Satan, all po- this powerful Satan. God himself isn't even the one who comes. He sends an angel, which puts into perspective how much greater the power of God is over our adversary, Satan Satan is bound by the almighty power of God. He's bound by the sovereignty of God. And we looked at that at great extent. And God ultimately bound Satan by omnipotent power, by sovereignty, through Jesus Christ. Through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we considered last week the the, the significance of the number 1,000 and how almost without exception, every number in the book of Revelation is symbolic and it is dangerous now to come to the number 1,000 and deviate from that. And we saw the symbolism of 1,000 and it reminds us here that what John is doing here is not trying to tell us specific events that are happening. John is communicating to us a glorious, God-honoring vision, and he's using these symbols to help us to understand the meaning of it, to help us to understand the sense of it all. And so he uses symbolism to get at the the deeper meaning of what he sees. So what does 1,000 symbolize? Well, all throughout Revelation, the number 10 has been a number for completion. Three has been the divine number. Ten times ten times ten is 1,000. And so what we have here, the number 1,000 is a a picture of completion. It's a picture of a, a powerfully long period of time, a divine time, a time we might say that only God knows. But from our perspective, it's a powerfully long time. And so here we see the binding of Satan during the time of between the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the return of Christ. We're living in this period of long time where Satan is bound. And we wrestled with some of the struggles with that last Lord's Day. Do we see anywhere in the Gospels where Satan is bound in the ministry of Jesus? Absolutely. In Matthew 12, when, when Jesus is healing the demon-possessed man and the Pharisees are coming and they're saying to him, only an ally of Satan could do this. How did Jesus reply? He says, how can someone enter a, enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. What's he saying? This demon-possessed man was under the control of Satan. How is somebody else going to come in and take this individual away from the strong man, away from Satan, unless he first binds him? Jesus declares that his ministry has begun a work of binding the work of Satan. We see in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, after Jesus sends out the 72... They were overjoyed by what they had seen, by the conversion of unbelievers to faith in Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What's he suggesting there? Satan's power, Satan's grip to blind and deceive people from seeing Christ through the ministry of Jesus, it's being plucked away. And, and his eyes are being opened to see the beauty of Christ. I, I'm seeing Satan fall like lightning. And probably the most clearest example, the clearest message that the binding of Satan happened in the ministry, the life, the death of Jesus. And is present is what we read in Colossians 2, where Paul writes that Jesus' death on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities, disarmed them. Put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we saw that the binding of Satan is not something we're looking forward to. It's something that's now, presently, that is happening in the world in which we live. And why? What's the purpose of Christ binding the work of Satan? We saw there, there in verse 3, that he might not deceive the nation's Whereas in the Old Testament, why is it that Israel had so little influence on the world around them? Because the world around them was in the grip of Satan. He was the great deceiver. Just what we see him doing to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he was doing to the nations of the world. And with only a few gracious exceptions of God, the Gentile world was in rebellion to God. But now... After the binding of Satan, what's the, what is Jesus' message to his disciples? Now that Satan has been bound, now that he is no longer able to deceive the way that he did all throughout all Old Testament history, now go and make disciples. Why did that message not come prior to the resurrection of Jesus? Because the world was still under the grip of Satan and the deceiving power. But at the resurrection, Jesus stomped the head of the serpent. He conquered the serpent. He overcame him. And now, post-resurrection, Satan is bound. Now he's unable to turn the hearts of men away from God. So Christ says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go turn the hearts of men to Christ. Show them Christ, which is where we are today it's the ever since the ascension of Jesus Christ this has been the work of the church of Jesus Christ to show Jesus Christ so verses 1 through 3 are the binding of satan now verse 4 then i saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Well, once again, let's turn our hearts to the Lord and plead the presence of the Spirit to help us to understand the word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we confess to you These things are bigger than we can understand. By ourselves, left to ourselves, we can only make a mess of your holy inspired word. But Father, we praise you and thank you. We have not been left to ourselves. You have given us everything necessary that we might take this word and understand it, Father, as John intends us to understand it as the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write intends for us to understand it, and as you, our God, intends for us to understand it and apply it to our lives. And we confess, Father, the flesh is often unwilling. There's a part of us that, that even what we may try to resist what this word says. Father, help us. Would you come and overcome our resistance? Would you come and conform our lives to the reality of this passage that as we leave here today we may live lives glorifying the King Jesus clinging to the hope we have in Jesus and empowered to continue turning hearts to the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ with peace with comfort with hope Lord we ask these things for the glory of Christ and our joy In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we come in verses 4 through 6 to that passage in Revelation that historically has been called the Millennium. Much has been written about the infamous thousand-year reign, and not much of it agrees. You can pick up three different books on Revelation chapter 20, and you will find, most likely, three different interpretations. You'll get three different views about what's actually being described here in Revelation chapter 20. And though there is a vast amount of information available on Revelation chapter 20 and on the various ways of interpreting the millennium, disturbingly, I found it harder to find anything meaningful with regard to a spiritual reflection on the text itself. What I mean by that is this. By and large, Christians today, even wise, smart Christians, are more focused on a position on the millennium than they are in understanding what is the millennium all about. And that should disturb us. We've talked about when we come to the Word of God, We don't come as academics trying to figure out the text. We come as hungry, needy beggars in whom God alone is our all-sufficient food, and we plead with God. What does this text say about God? My soul needs God. I care not about a millennial position. I care not about an understanding of how all these things, I want to know God. And disturbingly, very little attention is given to spiritual reflection. What does this text say to us about God? About the person and work of Jesus Christ? About why God purposed a millennium in the first place? But with God's help this morning, that's, Those are the things I want to draw out of the text this morning that I want us to give attention to under the title this morning of the millennial blessing for the true saints of God, the millennial blessing of the true saints of God. And by now, I have my own millennial position. My purpose this morning is not to convince you to see things my way. My purpose this morning is that you would see God and see Christ. And leave here enchanted by him. The millennial blessing for the true saints of God. Now, the text we've just read in verses 4 through 6, just to kind of give a 30,000 foot view, is kind of a parenthetical scene that comes between verses 1 through 3 and verses 7 through 10. In verses 1 through 3, we have the binding of Satan. In verses 7 through 10, we have Satan's final judgment. The binding and the final judgment wedged in between those things is verses 4 through 6. This is John ministering to his, the churches of Jesus Christ in the period of time between the ascension of Christ and his resurrection. Yes, those seven churches of Asia Minor, but again, the number seven is symbolic of fullness. Those seven churches are representative of every church in every age, the problems we see in those seven churches are the same problems in every church in every age. Those are the same problems at Covenant Life Church. And John is ministering to the churches in the time until Christ returns with this word of grace and peace. Grace and peace for those who are living in the millennium, which we are, that period of time between the Uh, ascension of jesus christ and his return it's a message of comfort for the ambassadors of christ who live to now that satan is bound the great deceit who live now to undeceive the hearts of men with regard to christ because satan is bound our task is one to undeceive through god's word our own hearts about who Jesus is because there's a lot of deception in our own hearts about Christ. And also as we are enchanted by the the truth of who Christ is, that we would be equipped the overflow of that to undeceive the hearts of others with regard to the person, the beauty, the majesty, the fullness, the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. That's what Christianity has always been. A heart that is preoccupied with Christ the fullness of God, who he is. And that's the task that is before us until Christ returns. Satan is bound. Turning hearts to Christ. And I want us to consider this morning the millennial blessing for the true saints of God because this revelation is coming to Christians who have what? They're living in the midst of persecution from the roman empire they have seen their own family and friends martyred because of christ they themselves live in danger of they themselves being martyred and that's true of this millennial time period satan is bound but we still have the flesh we still have the world people want to say well how can you say satan is bound look at what's going on in the world today oh we don't need satan Our flesh is inherently evil. The world is inherently evil. There is enough there. We give way too much credit to Satan, who is a created being, who is not omnipresent, who can only be in one place at one time. And to be perfectly honest, none of us are important enough that he needs to devote all of his singular time to you and I. Satan did not make me do it. My flesh made me do it. Satan is bound. Satan is bound, and now there's a lot of danger in the world around us. So John brings this word of millennial encouragement. And I want us to consider the blessings of the millennium under three headings. Number one, the saint's heavenly reward. Secondly, the blessings of the millennium, the saint's earthly life. And thirdly, the saint's only hope. And what we're looking at with these, the blessings of the millennium, we're beginning with the blessing itself. There's one blessing and we're filtering down how does that blessing become mine all the way down to the root of it. So let's look at these together. The blessings of the millennium. Number one, the saints heavenly reward. The saints heavenly reward is this, to reign with Jesus. The saint's heavenly reward is to reign with Jesus. Look at verse 4. John writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ. For a thousand years. Well, let's stop here for just a moment and ask some important questions about what we just read. Number one, John says, after seeing the binding of Satan, verse four, the first thing he sees here are thrones. So the first question, where are these thrones? Where are they? Well, this is far from the first time that John has seen thrones in the book of Revelation. In fact, it may surprise you, John, has, John references thrones 46 times in the book of Revelation. That's, that's massive. Obviously, this is an important theme in the book of Revelation. Three of those 46 times, thrones is in reference to the place where Satan reigns every other one, every other time throne is used, the throne is located in heaven, every time. The only place in the book of Revelation where John sees a throne is in heaven, at least apart from Satan's throne. So it could not be more obvious. John is speaking here of a heavenly throne. And when he says, I saw thrones, it's clear that from verses 1 through 3 to where we are now, he's changed his glance. Verses 1 through 3, the binding of Satan on earth. Now in verses 4 through 6, he's looking up. He's looking up. But let's carry that a little bit further. John is not talking about literal thrones. Again, there's imagery, there's symbolism in the book of of Revelation. He's using this this throne to convey a richer meaning. A richer meaning that we're told what it is at the end of verse 4. These thrones are where Christ is. They reign with Christ on these thrones. Those who sit upon these, these thrones that, that John sees are reigning in heaven with Christ. And what a glorious reality that is. Let me pause and ask this. I just said, those who sit upon these thrones are reigning in heaven with Christ. What a glorious thought that is. Let me ask, which part of that is glorious? They're in heaven or they're with Christ? It would seem we live in a a day today where even professing Christians tend to be more enchanted by the thought of heaven and golden streets and reuniting with loved ones than they are with Christ himself. What is it that makes heaven heaven? It's the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what makes heaven glorious. The fullness of God in flesh is there. He who is the word of God, the highest self-revelation of God to man. You want to know who God is? You look at Christ. He is the exact representation of who the the father is. He is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the King of kings, the Lord of Lords, the lover of the true believer's soul. And what we need to be aware of this morning there in verse 4, the saints' reward. Yes, these thrones are in heaven, but the saints' reward is not they go to heaven when they die. The saints' reward is they get to be with Christ. He is the one they want. He is the one they long for. So much so, that if it were the case, it's not the case, but let me play this out. If Christ were not in heaven, if Christ were in hell, but you have heaven, you have a Christless heaven, and you have Christ in hell, the true believer would say, I choose hell because I want Christ that bad. The saint's heavenly reward is Christ. That's where his interest lies, being where Christ is. And that's the blessing of the millennium here. Christ ascended. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is there. And the first thing here in the millennium that John draws our attention to is that where Christ is, his people can be too. The saints' heavenly reward To reign with Christ, to be with Christ. That brings us to the second thing. That's the reward. The second thing, can we put it in this terms? How do I get there? If that's where Christ is, and that's what I want, Christ, how do I get from where I am here in in the time between the the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ with all the hardships and the affliction and the hostility and the tribulation and the suffering? How do I get to where he is? The second point, the saint's earthly life. The saint's earthly life is to grow and persevere in knowing and loving Jesus Christ supremely until the day you die. How does one get from here to there? This is the saint's earthly life. This is what it must be. You must know and grow and persevere in knowing and loving Christ supremely unto death. Anything less will not find their place in the presence Of the king. As we look at verse 4 again, the passage we just read, here's another question. Not just where are they, who's on these thrones? Who's on them? If those thrones are symbolic of a people reigning with Jesus, then this question is of paramount importance to us. And John answers for us who's on these thrones? Look at verse 4. I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls. Let's stop there for a minute. He doesn't say, I saw the bodies. I saw the souls. Another indication, this is a heavenly throne. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Who is on these thrones? Well, John identifies with a number of different things. He identifies them. They have authority to judge. He goes on to say they've been martyred, right? They've been beheaded. They didn't worship the beast is another thing he said. They didn't receive his mark. They reign with Christ. If we were to keep reading in verses 5 and 6, John goes on to say they share in the resurrection of Christ. They're blessed and holy. The second death has no power over them. They're priests. All of these are descriptions that John gives about these that he sees upon the throne. And those are powerful statements. I mean, we could have made in this sermon all of those bullet points. Let's talk about those individually. But let's be real specific. If we take those things collectively, who are these people? He categorizes them two ways. Number one, they're martyrs. Some of the ones he sees on the thrones in the presence of King Jesus are martyrs. They are those to whom... Verse 4 says, they have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Because of their love for Jesus. Because he is all to them. And they were unwilling to compromise in a day in which if you compromise, we'll let you live. But if you're going to be one of those fanatics who Jesus is all and all and all, then you got to go. They were more enchanted by Christ and clinging to him so much so, cut my head off which is what the word literally means, to have your head removed with a double-edged axe. John looks up and he sees the martyrs who had lost their lives because of their love for Christ, those who remained faithful to Christ, those to whom Christ was so precious, that they counted their lives of no value. They counted the family they would leave behind of no value in comparison to my affection and my love for Christ. And isn't that what Jesus said? To be a follower of him, your love for your family, your parents, your children, must look like hatred in comparison He didn't say you gotta hate your children or your parents or your spouse. He said, your love for me must be so far beyond the boundaries that your family's jealous. They feel like you hate them because you don't give them the love you have for Christ. And what did Jesus say? You can't be my follower unless you have that kind of love for me. Beloved, that ought to convict some souls, mine included. Because what we see here in these martyrs are those who said, I will forsake it all. I'm leaving behind children, spouse, fill in the blanks, everything. But I will not compromise my love for Christ. They remain faithful to Christ until their last breath. This is the first group that John sees around the throne. But there is a second group. It's not... Only those who lost their life, who were martyrs for the name of Jesus. In verse 4, John says, Also, those who would not worship the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So the second classification of people are those who, their love for Jesus, at least to this point, it didn't cost them their lives. They died in some other way other than martyrdom. But they did die, but up until their last breath, Jesus was all. Christ was all. You see, the issue in this vision is not the circumstances of your death. It's not the method of your death. It's not were you martyred for Christ or not. The issue is your knowledge of Christ, your love for him your devotion to Him, your faithfulness to Him as your all in all until your last breath. Oh, we've created a counterfeit Christianity today where someone can profess on one day, I love Jesus. I'm really convicted over my sin. I feel really bad about it. I repent. I profess faith in Jesus. I'll even be baptized in subsequent weeks. And I have love for Jesus, but it wanes a little bit. And ultimately, I reach a point over the course of days and weeks and months where I have no love for Jesus whatsoever. But don't talk to me about salvation. I clearly remember a time when I professed faith in Jesus and he forgave me. Oh, oh, how we have misunderstood who Christ is and what he demands of his people. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is why... Paul, when he's writing the New Testament, talks about his prayer. is pleading to God as that I may finish well. Because the Christian life does not matter how you start. Don't hear me saying it's unimportant. There must be, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. There must be a clear, conscious turning of the heart to Jesus Christ. But our hope is not in how we start. It's how we finish. Are we finishing with a growing love and affection and devotion to Jesus? The saint's reward is to be with Christ. The way to get there is you must live a life of growing and persevering knowledge and love and devotion to Jesus until your final breath. Let us not be those who sit back and put our hands back and say, "Yeah, I got that one covered. I don't have to worry about that. My goodness, let us be honest with our own soul and ask the correct question. Who can do this? For whom is this kind of life possible? If this is the life of the martyrs, if this is the uncompromising life of true believers, if these are the ones who get Christ at the end, and I look at my life, Is my love for Christ growing and my affection for him? Is it where it needs to be? If we're honest with ourselves, for many of us, probably it's not. So where is our hope? I'm glad you asked. There's no more important question. That's the third thing. The saint's only hope. To have the saint's reward, which is Christ, you must have the saint's life. But oh my goodness, that saint's life is a high calling. To have that saint's life, you must have the saint's hope. And what is the saint's only hope? Is that by the power of God and his Holy Spirit, he gives us a heart that will be so captivated by Christ that we will finish well. Where's the Christian's hope? It's in God. Stay with me for just a moment. How did these martyrs, how did these deceased saints remain faithful and uncompromising to Christ in the face of death with a double-sided axe coming down on their head? How in that moment did they not recant and turn away from Jesus Christ? We just sang it. Lord, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I profess I love. Especially with an ax coming down on my head. How is it in that moment they didn't answer? It was the work of God, the power of God that took out of nothing and spoke and created everything into existence. That same power spoke life into a dead, empty heart and brought life that will love Jesus like that. These martyrs and faithful saints, we don't applaud them. How courageous, how bold. Hey, kids, remember, is the Bible a book about the heroes, about these martyrs? Oh, we should be like them? No. What made these martyrs what they are? It was God. It was the work of God upon their heart. In what John calls in his gospel, the new birth or regeneration. These martyrs and faithful saints who finished clinging to Christ, they cling because their lives bear the marks of an almighty God bringing new life to bear upon their hearts. And lest you think, Jake, man, you're reading an awful lot into there, look at verse 4. We read the text there in verse 4. But then it says verse five, or excuse me, at the end of verse four, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And that's the key word there. The first Resurrection. Certainly a word that has been the cause of much confusion. It's confusing because nowhere else in the Bible is that word used. If we had somewhere else we could turn and try to find something, a context clue. But this is the only place in the Bible we see that specific term used. So what's it talking about? Well, despite how it's often been portrayed... I don't believe it's talking about bodily resurrection. It's a reference to our spiritual resurrection. Our resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life, in regeneration, in conversion. This is how a saint enters the dwelling place of God. Unless we think that's, that's a stretch, Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul writes. And you were dead, all right, dead, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he uses the word there, dead. We're dead. But obviously, the dead people there They're still doing stuff, right? So physical death means you don't do anything. You're dead. You cease doing things. But he calls us dead, and yet he clearly says, and yet you're continuing to do something. So obviously, obviously he's talking not about a physical death there. He's talking about a spiritual death. You were spiritually dead in trespasses. And then he goes on in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, spiritually dead, He made us alive together with Christ. Just as Christ rose from the grave, so too spiritually through Christ, there is a resurrection of the soul from death to life. And it's the work of God. Paul talks about the same thing in, in Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 8. Here in Ephesians 2, he talks about it's by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again and think about Revelation 20. It is by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So life has been given to us in Jesus Christ, spiritual life. And that spiritual life gives us a place in the heavenly places where Christ is. And isn't that the vision of what John sees? John says it's Christ bringing spiritual life into the spiritual dead that gives you a place there. How did they get there? By the work of God bringing spiritual life into their spiritual deadness. You see, these martyrs who have so faithfully clung to Christ, even unto death, their lives bear the mark of the work of God, bringing them the new birth. Regeneration. That's a big word, isn't it? What do we mean by regeneration? It's just what, happened in John chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus, that great religious leader who knew his Old Testament, comes to Jesus by night, impressed by what he's seen by Jesus, but he comes. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you, religious leader, cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, Nicodemus is confused by that. I'm a grown man. How am I going to get back in my mother's womb again? What do you mean born again? again? To which Jesus then replies with another metaphor, truly, truly I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you shall not see the kingdom of God. Now who's it's John writing that story, same John, he's using symbolism here, just as he does in, in the book of Revelation. What does water symbolize? Not just to John, but throughout the Bible, cleansing. To enter the kingdom of God, you must be cleansed and you must be washed by cleansing and the capital S Spirit of God. What's he saying there? The spiritual life that you desperately need, Nicodemus, that you might attain God, that you might have Christ, can only come to you through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit of God's work upon your soul. Regeneration is that work. Regeneration is that big word for being born again, born from above, born by God. New spiritual life. Wayne Grudem defines regeneration as a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. It's God who brings us to us in fulfillment of what he said in Ezekiel 36. Listen to what God said there in the Old Testament. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Who's doing all the work there? God is. God is the one, I will cause you to do this when I put my spirit within you. How in the world did these martyrs and these who didn't die because of their faith, but they, they finished, how did they finish so well? It wasn't because they were superstar Christians. It was because of the work of God upon the soul When God does this work upon a soul, you can count on it. A few things happen. And the question for us this morning, before we can claim these millennial blessings for ourselves, we better ask, is there evidence of this work of the Spirit upon my soul? Number one, God's Spirit will shine light into the darkness. When the Holy Spirit comes and infiltrates a heart in fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, when when a soul is born from above, like Jesus told to Nicodemus, God's Spirit will shine light into the darkness. And that light will do a couple of things. Number one, it'll expose sin. Light exposes sin. And it must be that way. For God is holy, He hates sin, He hates all sinners. Sin is an abomination to God. When God infiltrates a soul, he must and he will expose sin. But not only that, the light of the Spirit will also show us Christ. As we wrestle with the reality of our sin before the face of God who dwells us, we recognize I have no hope. We are sinful. My soul is a dark cavern of sin and rebellion against God but the light of the Holy Spirit shines the light on Christ and says, but there is one. God has sent one who will come and can clean out the cavern of your soul, who can clean out the, the sin and rebellion against God, who will take the penalty for it and bring forgiveness for it. And that one is Christ, and oh, look at him. He is altogether lovely. The light of the Spirit upon a soul Will also expose all deadness, all hypocrisy, all dullness. When it comes to our spiritual duties unto God, every one of us are religious, everyone in this room, because people by nature are religious. That's Romans chapter 1. Even if an atheist rebels against God, there is still a religion of self in the soul. We are all religious. But if in our religious duties to God, if they've become dull and dry, if we say one thing with our lips on a Sunday morning in front of everything, but then the rest of the week we think and do completely something else. Beloved, fear for your soul. Because the light of the Holy Spirit exposes deadness. It exposes hypocrisy. It exposes dullness. And if we claim to be filled by the spirit and yet our soul has drifted away from Christ and there's not even a smidgen of burden for the condition of my soul, the reality of hypocrisy, the reality of dullness, the reality of deadness, by all means, fall on your face before God and plead something is wrong. Or a spirit indwells. It exposes those things. If you're not harassed, by the the lack of your fellowship with Christ in your prayer and in worship, fall on your face before God. If you're not wrought with some concern that the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, who is the all in all, if you're not wrought with despair because for some reason he is not sufficient to me, then that, that is evidence that maybe what we think is going on in our soul isn't going on fall through our face and plead with God for forgiveness. Because somewhere perhaps we've quenched the work of the Spirit. A dangerous place to be. Or, God, I've never never been filled by your Spirit. These things have never taken place in me. This is what had happened in the martyrs and those who finished well. These are the things that must take place in order to claim the blessing of eternity with Christ. God's Spirit shines a light into the darkness. It reveals Christ and gives us a hunger and thirst for Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit, if you think about a spotlight on a house, right? You drive around it and some of you have very nice homes and and you do this exterior illumination and and at night you turn the lights on. You drive by these houses and you see the the lights here and they, they shine on the house, right? And it's like, wow, that's beautiful. That's what the Spirit does. It shines the light on Christ so that you say, he is beautiful, he is all. And what has always been true of the Christian, the very least measure of faith that you can possibly have and call yourself a Christian is that you see Christ And you desire him, you pant after him, you want him, you crave him, you must have him. You must do what Jesus said, forsake all else, turn away from all else, that I may have Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. That's why these martyrs and those who finished well in the the face of persecution how they were able to do it. It was the work of the Spirit who had given them this light. It was the work of the Spirit who had opened their eyes to behold the beauty of Christ. It was the work of the Spirit who had sanctified them, who had grown them in their love for Jesus. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Satan's been bound. For me to live is to know Christ and to make Christ known. But to die is gain. I'll leave it all behind. No matter, no matter the method of death, to die would be gain because I get to be where Christ is. Where does that kind of affection come from? Not from super Paul. From the work of the Spirit upon Paul's soul. And so we have the saint's reward, Christ. We have the saint's life that must be a Love for Christ. A growing, sanctifying, persevering love for Christ. And how do you get that? The saint's only hope. is the work of the Spirit upon the soul giving us that heart. Which is why in verse 6, John closes with this. Blessed and holy is the one who who shares in the first resurrection. What do we say the first resurrection is? Not a bodily resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. From death to life, the new birth. Blessed and holy is the one who, who partakes of the, who's born again by God, filled with the spirit to love Christ like this. That's the one who sits on the thrones. Not because heaven's so great, because that's where Christ is. And wherever Christ is, that's where I want to be. Because he's the one I'm enchanted with. That is the hope, the millennial hope of the believer. The second death means punishment. And that is the wrath of God. But what's true here, all those who participate in the first resurrection, they're blessed and holy. And what does it say? will not experience the second death. They will not experience the wrath of God. Why? Because they've been born again. The question for us this morning is not, do I have the right view of the millennium? There's none of them, not one of us in here who can know that. But biblically, we know this. The ministry and the death and resurrection has bound Satan now. Now. And right now in the time between the ascension in Christ and his return is a time where the saints of God are called to turn hearts, our own hearts and the hearts of others to Christ in the midst of great persecution, affliction, and suffering. And this millennium, picture of the millennium comes to the saints as grace and peace, as hope, because they know this. If they continue in faithfulness to Christ, some of them will be martyred. Some of them will lose their life, but they cling to the millennial blessing. To be absent from the body, by God's grace, will be to be present with the Lord. Don't fear what man can do to you. Fear if your heart isn't enchanted by Christ. I believe John shows us this picture to encourage us. To show us not only that our enemy is trapped and contained, but to show us the life that belongs to all who love Christ. Do you love Christ in that way? Do you love Christ in the way that the Spirit fills a heart to love Christ? Don't leave here today. If your love is anything less than that, fall on your face. Plead with God. Where have I quenched your spirit? Or, forgive me, I've been religious, but I never knew Christ this way. Show me Christ. Enchant my soul with Christ. That he would be all in all.